Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books and National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windish. My guest, Ariel Aram, wrote the book, Break All the Borders, Separatism and the Reshaping of the Middle East. Ariel Aram is an associate professor in the Virginia Tech School of Public and International Affairs. Ariel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. In Break All the Borders, you talk about separatist movements in the Middle East and North Africa since the 2011 Arab uprisings. How did you come to write about this topic? There was a lot of discussion surrounding the uprisings of 2011 that the states of the Middle East could break apart into a million pieces. We saw this a lot in the discourse of the region. There are a lot of maps that were being generated about countries breaking into five, six, seven different different segments ethno-sectarian fragmentation. What I noticed, though, was that countries were actually breaking apart along predictable fault lines, that the separatist movements, movements that were trying to redesign borders and adjust borders to reflect what they thought was a more organic, more stable political reality, were often movements that had originated in the early 20th century. So what I wanted to write about was how these separatists were setting up their own counter states in relationship to the pre to the to the states that had existed in 2011. Our listeners can't see it, so I'll describe the cover of the book. It it looks like a photo of a military checkpoint. And when we were talking, you mentioned you had a different cover in mind originally. What happened? Part of the writing of this book, I was a fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center in, in Washington D.C. My daughter, who was in kindergarten at the time would come to my office and she was really interested in the, the, the materials that I had collected, the kind of piles of research of, of research materials. And occasionally I would also take her on, on, on meetings uh, if she didn't have school uh, to, to talk with some journalists and other people who were involved in it. And she became really interested in this topic and she designed a cover for the book that took the, the, the flags of each of the separatist movement and kind of made it into a big crayon filled mismatch. Unfortunately, the publisher wasn't so keen on on having a six year old design the the cover, but uh, it's still still in my files. And someday, maybe we'll if we do a second edition, we'll I'll, I'll let her 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 cover show up somewhere. You describe the different disciplinary approaches to looking at separatist movements, from comparative politics and sociology to international relations to historical analysis. Can you talk about how you developed your methodology and talk a little bit about this interdisciplinary approach? The question of separatism really sits on a seam in the way social scientists imagine that states emerge. International relations specialists tend to look at the emergence of states as a function of the global system. And so they like to think of the, the they think of separatism, that efforts to try and create new states as inherently involving the global, as inherently involving the actions of other states. On the other hand, comparative politics tends to look at the functions inside states, the domestic politics of states. So when they look at separatists, they think, well, there must be something deficient or problematic in the internal politics of the states. And these, these are groups that are trying to break away to create their own states. So it becomes a kind of domestic level trauma. 
I'm much more comfortable, and I think a more effective way to think about these things is to think about it the way historical sociologists do. States are not things that exist spatially, but also things that exist in time. And we can imagine the rise and fall of states coming in waves. What I tried to do with the book was show how historical timing and opportunities that have been provided by the by by changes in the way the world worked, changes in the norms, uh, changes in norms, changes in structures, changes in the global distribution of power, created opportunities for separatists to push forward to try and create new states. And often, though, by building out their historical their historical linkages by claiming a historical legacy to state making movements that had failed in the previous generations. You begin with an examination of the post-World War I Wilsonian moment. Can you talk about what was happening in the region at this time and the legacy of the time period? There's a short version and a long version to this answer. I think anyone who's done any studies in the Middle East is familiar with the short version, that at the end of World War I, the British and French were dividing up the, the, the former Ottoman territories in the Middle East. And they came to the peace tre- peace negotiations with an idea of a map that they wanted to draw, based largely on an agreement between Mark Sykes and Francois Picot. Woodrow Wilson intervened. He insisted on the creation of a League of Nations and, and some kind of mandate structure that would allow some measure of self-determination to come forward. And so the states that ended up emerging in Syria, in Iraq, in Jordan, Palestine, but also to a lesser extent, also in Egypt and North Africa, were kind of bastardized versions of self-determination that they ended up fulfilling neither of the neither the ideas of the colonialists nor of the people involved. That's the short version. As we come up on the hundredth anniversary of of the end of World War One, there's been a, a a new kind of historical reevaluation. It's not that these things weren't known, but that no one had really seen the whole picture. The longer story is that what happened at the end of World War One was there were myriad groups pushing to try and get the attention of great powers, particularly of President Wilson. This included groups in the Middle East, Arab nationalists, Kurdish nationalists, Zionists, uh, Assyrian nationalists, Armenians. Uh, there were hundreds of different ideas about how the region could be redrawn to, to create a more stable political system. And globally, we also saw the emergence of nationalist movements pushing to try and get the attention of Wilson um, Ho Chi Minh was then a, a, a waiter at a, a hotel in Paris. He tried to get, get a meeting with, with President Wilson. Saad Zalul, who was the head of the anti-colonial opposition group in, in Egypt, also tried and failed to get a meeting with Wilson. So there was this kind of, there was this moment of opportunity in the global structure, kind of a, 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 a critical juncture, what sociologists call it, where nationalist movements thought that they had a chance to really to get the attention of the international community and perhaps get permission for the international community to create states. In the end, the great powers, the U.S., Britain, France, mostly, but also other other European powers kind of dithered. They favored some and disfavored others, largely for kind of not for any particular reasons, but but of convenience. And so some groups got states and other groups got left out of the international system. And they became kind of pariahs. They were forced to live in, in a state system that they hadn't designed in which they had actually deliberately tried to oppose. So there were these brief moments in the 1920s, immediately after the, the, the end of World War I, where certain groups thought that they could still break through. There were a number of Kurdish rebellions uh, that, that came all, all the way from in Turkey, in Syria, and then Iraq. There were uprisings in, in, uh, in Libya against the, against the reinsertion of, of, of Italian colonialism. There were uprisings in Morocco. Uh, all over the region, there were groups that thought that the international community might be accepting of their push for statehood now. In the end, 
only only a handful of them broke through. What I talk about in the book is how those early experiences of failed state formation, kind of uh, rebutted state formation, the unacknowledgement of the national community, set the set the stage for reassertions when states failed in 2011. Sykes-Picot has become a shorthand to refer to the mismatch between identity and contemporary political institutions in the Middle East. However, you point out that narrative doesn't tell the whole story, especially as it may minimize the agency of indigenous actors. Can you talk about the colonial legacy and how you incorporated other key factors in your historical analysis? The idea of using Sykes-Picot as a shorthand, as it often is in the Middle East, is misleading on a a couple of different levels. It's misleading first because Sykes-Picot agreement really only dealt with Syria and Iraq, right? It has nothing to say. They said nothing about North Africa, nothing about Yemen, nothing about uh, about Turkey, uh, nothing about uh, about the Arabian Peninsula, really. So even if you're blaming Sykes-Picot, the the agreement for certain things, right, that, that doesn't account for what happens, for instance, in Tunisia or Libya, or Morocco, or Egypt. Secondly, the agreement itself was never really implemented. The division, of the territorial division that the British and French reached uh, after, after at the end of the war was roughly similar to what Sykes-Picot had imagined, but structurally was very different. Right? Sykes-Picot had not anticipated uh, a mandatory structure for the, uh, under the League of Nations. And it had not really accommodated the idea that there would be any kind of sovereignty for any group within the region. What happened at the end of the war was almost the opposite of what Sykes-Picot had imagined. You did see states emerge that were kind of provisionally sovereign. That was what the mandates were. The mandate for for, for Iraq, the mandate for Syria, uh, the mandate for Transjordan was based on this idea that these countries would soon be independent states that would not be colonies. That's not what Sykes-Picot had, had envisioned. Following World War II, you speak to the landscape of the Middle East and North Africa and that many newly recognized states included ethno-sectarian cleavages, but there was a tendency for those groups to make demands for inclusion rather than seek separate states. Can you talk more about this? Sure. The end of World War II saw a kind of uh, a second a, a second iteration of the League of Nations idea of self-determination becoming the basis for 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 sovereignty and for statehood. The problem was that the states that beca- that gained independence after World War One as well as after World War II often didn't meet the full criteria for self-determination. They had significant internal cleavages. They were groups that wanted their own independence but were stuck within these states. The international the international community reached a, a strange kind of compromise at that point. They recognized states as existing, as carrying the mantle of self-determination, but at the same time, they said that the statehood was going to be fixed. Territorial borders were going to be were, were, were going to be unadjustable, immutable. What that meant was that if you were a, a minority group living in Iraq or Yemen or Syria, and you had once imagined that you could have your own political entity, well, the chances of having a new border of borders being redrawn and recognized by the international community were now very, very slim. So you had to work within the structures of states. And what you saw was a shift in the way minority politics operated across the region. The Kurds are a great example of this. There had been numerous uprisings in the 1920s and 1930s where Kurds had tried to create their own Kurdish state, both in Syria, both in Iraq, lesser extent in Syria, also in Turkey. By the 1950s and 1960s, Kurds weren't demanding their own state. They said, well, we, we realize we don't have any other choice anywhere to go besides to be Iraqi or, or Turkish or Syrian. 
but what we would like to have is some kind of cultural or, or territorial autonomy within the state. It's very different than the outright secessionism that had characterized the 1920s and 1930s. States had a kind of centripetal pull. The more the international community committed to keeping state structures alive, the harder it was for separatist movements to, to seem viable. That made it that meant that didn't mean that political opposition was gone. It just meant that political opposition was being funneled into certain into a certain trajectory that that was focused on taking power at the center, not breaking away from the state. The book centers around case studies of Libya, Yemen, Kurdistan, and the Islamic State. Why did you pick these case studies? When we look across the region at the countries that were affected by the uprisings in 2011, separatism really only became a factor in certain countries. There was very, there was almost no separatist mention in Tunisia, Egypt, no separatism, Bahrain, no separatism. Only certain countries were affected by separatism. So this is so I wanted to look at those countries where separatists where, where separatists became a major factor in the politics of the country as the country was collapsing. So. We knew that there were separatist movements active in Yemen and actually in South Yemen and in Kurdistan, in Iraqi Kurdistan, before the uprisings. Uh, they were they were established parties that were making it, that were pushing for the reinstatement of lost sovereign territory, the reinstatement of South Yemen, which uh, had existed as an independent state from 1967 until 1991, and the reinstatement of Kurdistan, which had existed in the 1920s in various kind of short-lived forms. What was more surprising, though, was the emergence of separatist movements. In Libya, where there had where people had really not thought of it that there was any significant ethnic or sectarian cleavage that would push separatism. Additionally, the Islamic State I think caught everyone by surprise. My read of the Islamic State, and this is a, a kind of a controversial read, is that the Islamic State is a is a black sheep in the separatist fold. The Islamic State represented a Sunni separatist movement that emerged in the along the borders between Syria and Iraq, an attempt to reinstate. Uh, a, a, a system of Sunni Arab supremacy that had been lost with the arrival of a Shia-dominated government in Iraq in 2003, and also an Alawi-dominated government in Syria in the 1960s and 1970s. So those were the four positive cases of separatism that that emerged in in 2000 and that 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 appeared in 2011. Uh, I could have also done a study of a negative case, right? We take a look perhaps at Bahrain, where uh, there was a great deal of political contestation and very significant ethno-sectarian cleavages. But there were no calls to, to create a, a separate state within Bahrain. The main political fight was about who would get control over the central government. That's different than what we saw in Libya, Yemen, Kurdistan, and the Islamic State. I'd like to hear more about the case studies. Could you start off by telling us what you observed in Libya? Libya was one of the most interesting countries to do research in and on uh, because it's a country that I think even Middle East specialists knew very little about before 2011. You could really kind of count on 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 two hands the number of American researchers that were spending significant times significant amount of times thinking about Libya uh, before the uprisings. So there was a lot to learn for me, uh, and there was a lot to learn I think uh, for for the, the 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 international community as they approached uh, Libya. Most of the politics of Libya had most of the analysis of Libya has focused on who will get control over the central government in Tripoli. What I was interested, though, in was that the emergence of a separatist movement in eastern Libya, what in English we call it Cyrenaica, which is the ancient Greek word, Arabic called Barca. Where had this separatist movement come from? Where had this movement pushing for the creation of a, a, new, of a, a new territory uh, in eastern Libya uh, emerged? And what I found was that this was these were groups that were seeking to reinstate 
a political history that had that had really gone extinct in 1951 with the creation of the unified kingdom of Libya. When I talked to leaders of the, the separatist movements in, in, in Libya and also to, to journalists and people who were, who were historians, people who were kind of more attuned to Libyan politics, one of the things that they emphasized was that many of the groups involved in the, in the separatist movement came from some of the Arab tribes of the Green Mountains that had been closely associated with the, the first monarchy, with the with the Senussi monarchy of Libya, and that previously had been involved in the Emirate of Cyrenaica, which is this kind of quasi-independent entity that had that had appeared and then disappeared in the 1920s and then reappeared in the 1940s. They were pushing this idea that Cyrenaica had once been autonomous and once really been independent, and that Libya had done them no good. That Libya had had its there had been a chance to, to create a unified Libya, it had failed, and now the international community should consider reinstating the sovereignty of Cyrenaica in order to 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 um, to improve security. Cyrenaica would be the kind of uh, the the protector of of the of, of Libya's oil. Most of Libya's oil is in the east, so it, it would belong to Cyrenaica. It would the Cyrenaican tribes were also vociferously opposed to uh, the Muslim Brotherhood and also to other Islamist groups, which the which the international community was worried about taking over in Libya. So there is a opportunity to create a partnership between the separatist forces in eastern Libya and and the global community. When we're talking about Cyrenaica, it's interesting because that is where we see the city of Benghazi. And Gaddafi was not as connected to that region, we saw more power centralized in Tripoli. Can you speak to the role this history played in the more recent events in Libya? Sure. Gaddafi uh, is from Sirte. He's actually from a small tribe directly in between, uh, equidistant between Benghazi and, um, and, and Tripoli. So between what had been the old capital of the, of the Cyrenaican Emirate and what became the new capital of the, the Libyan uh, mass republic, the Libyan Republic. Tripoli and Tripolitania, the province, is by far the largest, the richest, uh, most populous part of Libya. Cyrenaica had always been a un, relatively underdeveloped rural tribal. But with the advent of oil in the 1930s, it had its own kind of economic uh, uh, strength that Tripoli didn't have. The first, the, the first king of Libya, Idris Anusi, was from Cyrenaica, and he always seemed to favor Cyrenaica. He, he favored the tribes of Cyrenaica. He trusted them much more than he trusted Tripoli. He had very negative things to say about Tripoli, but Tripoli was the kind of cultural and commercial center uh, of the country. And so they, Libya evolved a system where they, in the, in the 1950s, where they div- divvied up political and economic power between uh, between Tripolitania and Cyrenaica, even though Tripolitania by by, demogra- by demographics, you know, probably should have had more, more, ac- you know, more strength. When Gaddafi seized power in 1969, he tried to disempower Cyrenaica. Now, it's not clear at that, it's not clear that, that Gaddafi had any particular animus against the Cyrena- against Cyrenaica. He was, he was, he, he distrusted a lot of different groups and he hurt a lot of different groups in, in his time in, in, in power. But from a Cyrenaica perspective, this was a, a kind of a deliberate slight. This was a, a, a way of, of putting Tripoli, putting Tripoli, the interests of Tripoli and Tripolitanians over the interests of, of Cyrenaica. And it led and it contributed to the emergence of a kind of a, Cyren- a Cyrenaican nationalist narrative that stressed that we once had independence. We were once we were once uh, uh, s- separate, and we were forced into this bargain with with Libya, and we're just waiting for a chance to get out. I think historically, like a lot of like a lot of nationalism, that's a historical myth. 
uh, but it's quite potent, and it's got, and it's become more potent since the fight, since the the collapse of the Libyan state uh, in 2011, especially since the civil war in 2014. Um, there are a lot of people in in the in the Green Mountains area, areas in Derna and Benghazi who really feel like Cyrenaica is a, is ethnically and politically and culturally separate and distinct from Tripolitania, and should have its own should have and should have its own political entity, should have its own self determination, and they're looking for international partners. Uh, to make that work. They've made this, the Federalist movement has made a kind of uh, a bargain with General Haftar, that's probably the strongest military commander in, in Libya right now. But that's a really a marriage of convenience. Haftar is not, uh, is not especially sympathetic to the idea of, um, of, of Cyrenaic separatism, but he's used their forces to try and fight common enemies, uh, particularly the Muslim Brotherhood and other Islamist groups that, that had been operating in Benghazi and, and areas in the East. Now, uh, in really in the last six months or so, uh, Haftar has been making his push. Uh, he's moving into the south and, and trying to sort of encircle Tripoli. It's not clear, though, if Haftar moves his base of operations from, uh, from the east, from Benghazi into, into Tripoli, whether the, the, the separatist forces will, fo- will follow him. Uh, there is a, uh, I think there, there is a sense that if, if Haftar relocates, then the bargain is off and the separatist movements might push again for, their, for, for independence. The legacy of past states is a really interesting thread throughout this book. And you speak to the sophistication of these separatist actors by using these historical states to claim legitimacy from the international community, even within the constraints of current borders. Can you tell us about these missing states and how they have enduring power? I think that conquered states are the platform by which many separatists make their claims uh, to, to seek their own sovereignty. And, work, and, and the idea that we once had a state and lost it, really in recent memory, is a really important claim for a couple of different reasons. First, it works on the international community because, it can, it, because by showing, going to the United Nations or, an, or an, another international actor and showing them a map that says, this is our country, it's on the map. For, for various reasons, we got taken off the map, but you could reinstate us. We, we, we were once a member of the club of states and we want to we want to we, we want back in and not just that we can want, want back in, but that we can help the international community. If you let us back in, we can do the things that that, that you want us to do. We can fight against uh, radical Islamist terrorists. We can um, ensure that there's stability at the borders. We can keep the oil flowing. These are all promises that separatists make based on the idea that we once had sovereignty and we lost it for a no good reason. So now is a chance to correct that mistake. At the domestic level, the idea of a lost statehood is also very important because it becomes a kind of focal point for political organizations domestically. If you imagine a situation like persisted in uh, in Syria in 2011, 2012, or in 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 uh, in Libya in the 90, in, in 2014, or or Yemen, where there was a really a kind of a collapse of the state and the state's demands on people's identities really kind of evaporated. People have a lot of different choices about how they want to organize their social life. They can join. Uh, they can join an Islamist group that talks about pan-Islamic unity and the cooperation among, among, amongst Muslims. They can join sectarian groups, sort of saying a Shia group or a, Shia, or a Sunni group. They can join a, uh, an ethno-linguistic group. They can join a sports club. They can join a tribal group. They can join a neighborhood association. And all of these things kind of had an efflorescence in 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 the in the wake of the uprisings because the states weren't there to kind of crush them. Why would you join a separatist movement? Why would you push? Why would you wager your political fate on the idea that we're going to create a new state? Well, 
I think one of the reasons is that 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 you have a pre-existing uh, structure, a pre-existing platform that you can point to and say this once existed and it can exist again. So conquered states, lost states, lost autonomy gives a a a, a pre-existing basis for political mobilization. These these conquered states often have political parties that were associated with them. They have constitutions, they have national anthems, they have flags. They don't need to be reinvented in that regard. All they really need is to have the recognition and they and they exi- can exist. On the other hand, other kinds of social movements have they have to create their all of that stuff from scratch, and that's much harder. So I think that the the idea of conquered states, these pre-existing states, states like the Kingdom of Kurdistan that died in 1923, or South Yemen that died in 1991, uh, or or Cyrenaica that died in in 1950, or in, in, 19, in 1951, those become uh, a kind of a ready-made uh, political program for actors that are looking to assert uh, uh, political dominance. So that's a great segue to the next case study, which is about Yemen and the Southern Movement. Can you tell us more about your work there? Yemen is another country that I think is relatively understudied in in um, in certainly in American discourse. Although there's more, there's there's a much more substantial amount of of knowledge about Yemen than there ever, than there was about uh, about Libya. The Yemeni unification. Uh, in the early 1990s between South Yemen and North Yemen was considered at the time to be a kind of a, one of the high points of Arab, of, of Arab unity and, and uh, a harbinger of kind of good things to come for the region. It didn't turn out that way, though. Uh, almost immediately, there was a sense of regret amongst the leaders of the South, of the South Yemeni state about the way that they were treated in the unified, uh, in the unified uh, Yemen by, uh, by Ali Abdullah Saleh. Um, Saleh, again, was not necessarily anti-Southern, but he was quite jealous of political power. And he was always he was he was quite um, hostile to any kind of political movement that ha- that could that might challenge or block him. There was a civil war uh, in 1994 in Yemen uh, that was that the, the North one kind of conf- reconfirming the unification. And beginning in the 2000s, there was a number of, of political protest lines that tr- that complained about the economic and political marginalization of the South. The story, in some respects, is similar to the story of Cyrenaica. Uh, South Yemen's oil wealth was being diverted to serve the North. Uh, the, some of the major co- ma- major corporations and, the, and other kinds of uh, centers of, pol- of political and economic power were relocated from Aden and, and moved into Sana'a. By the mid 2000s, the, the Yemen had a number of different uh, political uh, conflicts going on: a conflict with 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 the, the Houthis in the far north, conflict with Al Qaeda and, and radical groups, kind of nationwide, and then a conflict with the in the south. The south was probably the most the most violent one by the mid 2000s, and the southern movement, which later became what we call the southern resistance, um, pushed this idea of of at least a, of at least of a federal system and possibly even uh, redivision of of North and South Yemen. But they were politically really under control. They had they they didn't have a lot of they they could, they could create instability, but didn't have a, a real opportunity for political advancement until the uprising. When the the uprising happened in 2011, the state really broke down, and the political control, the military control that the the central government had enjoyed in Aden and parts of the south, Hadramat and er, those kinds of areas, dissipated, and separatist actors were able to take over some of the most important infrastructure in the south. Uh, oil installations, the major ports, the airport, um, some of the major transit routes that connected uh, Yemen into into um, to Oman. They were the separatist actors. The the southern movement were also able to establish uh, political ties, particularly with the Emirates and Saudi Arabia, that had their own political agenda uh, for for trying to in, in Yemen. 
as the war between the Houthis and the central government escalated in 2013, 2014, and Saudi Arabia and Yemen committed um, troops and air forces to, to, to fighting the Houthis, uh, the Southern movement became the kind of the vanguard, the, 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 grounds, the ground soldiers for the, the Arab coalition that was fighting the, the Houthis in the, in the far north. There was a kind of tentative alliance between the Southern movement and the what was called the legitimate government, the, the pro-U.S. government of, Masa, uh, of Hadi. Uh, but practically, there was never a real kind of political accord. And every time Hadi tried to assert control or has tried to assert control over um, over the Southern movement, he's been rejected. The Southern movement um, has this kind of is a purely titular relationship under the central under the central government. So right now, as peace negotiations are proceeding uh, to try and resolve the issues for this for for northern Yemen, the fight between the central government and the, and the Houthis, the Southern resistance has made clear that they don't feel bound by that uh, by, by those agreements, and that if the central government tries to reassert its control over Aden and Hadramat, they are intending to fight. And frankly, they would win. Uh, there's no question about the about the balance of political power, a balance of military power right now. How has oil revenue impacted the development of states and the corresponding institutions required to support civil society? Every separatist actor that I dealt with believe that controlling oil would be a way to get the attention of the international community. They believe that if they had oil, the they would have a they would at least get a, a hearing with with the US uh, or other or other regional powers. I'm not sure how, I'm not sure whether that assessment was right though. I think that many of these separatist movements actually overestimated how important oil was to the to other partners. Right? Yes, it's true that they could sell oil in the, on the black market and and derive revenue from it, the Islamic State was the most one of the most exa- most uh, sort of well known examples of this. But the Kurdish actors did the same thing. Uh, the South Yemen the the South Yemeni um, separatists have been trying to do that. The Syrianians had this had a a number of different attempts to try and sell internet oil in the international market. It turns out though that it's not just enough to have possession of the oil. You also have to have international bank accounts that um, that that deposits can be made, and you have to have kind of a, a financial infrastructure that exists in London or New York where, where, where international transactions can happen. If you don't have that, if you don't have a, a partner who, can, who you can work with, a buyer who you can work with, oftentimes you end up selling oil kind of at below cost. You end up, they ended up losing money on certain different transactions or kind of really just giving it away uh, because they because no one was willing to work with a, uh, um, a, a renegade or a, a, rogue, a rogue operation. So where oil was, where, where the, the separatist actors thought that oil was kind of their, their trump card, that, that this was the way that they, were, they would get the attention of the international community, I think that all, they were often disappointed uh, in how readily the international community would work with them. The last two case studies look at Kurdistan and the Islamic State. And I found it interesting that you put these in some context going back to the Gulf War and the subsequent no-fly zones and sanctions imposed on Iraq. Can you talk about the global nation-state crisis and how it dovetails with these case studies? We often think about the international system as something that begins in the north and trickles down to the south. That the major decisions made in Geneva or London or Washington become are, are taken and then they have consequences for the rest of the world. In my research, one of the things that I was surprised to, to conclude was that Iraq was, in some respects, the kind of the bellwether of changes in the international systems beginning in the 1990s. 
after the Gulf War, uh, the 1990, 1991 Gulf War, Iraq was a kind of a prism by which all of the major debates about how the international system could work uh, were, 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 were viewed. Things like whether, whether or not to have humanitarian intervention, about the role of sovereignty, about self-determination, about international sanctions. These are all things that played out in Iraq uh, in the, it, during the 1990s. The question, the creation of the no-fly zone uh, in 1991 that protected the, what became the Kurdish, the Kurdish region, at that time it was called the Kurdish regional government, and now we call it the Kurdish region, um, was the product of a kind of a dissensus, a disagreement uh, in the international community about how you could implement humanitarian, is, humanitarian interventions and at the same time preserve sovereignty. And it was really a reflection of a compromise between this idea that, well, you have to provide humanitarian protection because Saddam is, is a madman and he'll do terrible things. But on the other hand, we have to keep Iraq sovereign and territorial and, and keep its territorial integrity intact. And so the no-fly zone was a kind of a compromise, right? That, uh, that it didn't allow Kurds to have their own state, but it did allow for humanitarian intervention. The, the 2003 invasion of Iraq, I think, made that those, those tensions even more palpable, uh, even, more, even more clear. And again, Iraq was the kind of the bellwether by right, which we, we evaluate newer, newer ideas like responsibility to protect. With the invasion, uh, the U.S. again insisted that Iraq remain intact, but allowed the, Kurd the Kurdish actors to have even more kind of political autonomy and even political legitimacy because they were, now, they were no longer this kind of anomaly sitting in, the northern, in, the, in, in northern Iraq, sovereign but not sovereign. But now they had a fully fledged political apparatus attached to Iraq. At the same time, the U.S. invasion disempowered the Iraq's Sunni Arab leadership, which had really been the kind of the dominant force in Iraq beginning in 1921 uh, with, a, uh, with a brief period, in the, except for a brief period in the 1950s. Every ruler of Iraq from 2001 until, 2000, until 2003 had been a Sunni Arab. And this sense of disempowerment, the sense of being removed from power and losing control over the state, pushed Sunni Arabs, both in Iraq but also in neighboring Syria, to reconsider their commitment to Iraq. So where, where Kurds in 2003 were sort of forced into this, this kind of unhappy marriage with, uh, to, to, to remain in unhappy marriage with Iraq, um, Sunni Arabs were pushed to reconsider how their commitments to Iraq. The emergence of groups like uh, al-Qaeda in Mesopotamia under Abu Musab Sarkawi and then uh, the Islamic State splinter uh, that came in, uh, later in 2000, in 2000 uh, in around 2010, well, actually a little bit 2007, 2008, but it came to its full fruition in 2010, 2011. The emergence of, of the Islamic State was a was a kind of represented the rejection of this Iraqi state that Sunni Arabs have once dominated. So you have on one hand, you have Kurds that are being pulled into Iraq and forced to cooperate with with Iraq with, with forced to operate within an Iraqi sovereign sphere. And Sunni Arabs who had once considered Iraq to be really their state, to think about the possibilities of creating a different state under an entirely different rubric. This idea of a global caliphate that was sort of that, that represented uh, Sunni orthodoxy reigning supreme, that was a represented the rejection of the Iraqi state that had once been firmly under their control. So the Kurdish, the, the, the Kurdish separatist movement and the Islamic State are kind of uh, these 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 twins that experience the same kind of crises but go in very different directions in response to them. In several of the case studies, you mentioned the friends of groups and their role in fundraising and managing state resources. Can you tell us more about this? Early on in the uprisings uh, in 2011, 
a combination of exile actors living in the diaspora and some uh, kind of political entrepreneurs living with it, working with the with the rebel groups on the ground realized that the only way that they were going to succeed was to attract the support of the international community and build a, a, a kind of a global consensus in support of their movement. These were not separatist actors. They were anti they were anti regime actors, but they adopted a, a kind of a common playbook uh, to try and get support of the international community. One of the things that they wanted to do was to try and get control over the, the country's finances. I mentioned earlier how the only way you can really sell oil at a decent price is if you have an interlocutor, a buyer on the other end who has a bank account in New York or London. Right? You have to be you have to have access to the international financial networks. And one of these, what these actors did was they they lobbied the international community to take the to, to essentially to take the name of the the country off the checkbook to make it so that it was no longer Muammar Gaddafi or Ben Ali or uh, um, or, or Saddam uh, no, not Saddam no or Bashar al-Assad's name to signature take their name off this as a signature off the off the checkbook and put it in the in the control of the international of the international community and preferably under the control of the exiles. The emergence of the friends of Syria, friends of Yemen, friends of Libya groups, these kind of large donor groups represented this idea that we're that that the international community the US in particular but the international community was going to sort of suspend the economic sovereignty of these countries until they started doing the right thing this this move though the friends of was done with the idea that, that this was a temporary measure that would allow the rebels to kind of to get economic resources and then make a push to take over the government and and then the the friends of group would step in and become a, a kind of a funder what it ultimately did, though, was it ultimately rendered these countries meaningless entirely, right? If your country is going to be in receivership, if if Libya is essentially, if its entire financial system is being controlled by the Friends of group and being operated uh, in Geneva or London, then what's the point of having Libya exist in any form any, uh, anyway? And that, opened, again, opened up the possibility for separatist actors to say, look, Libya has a failed experiment. Libya hasn't worked. Yemen has a failed experiment. Libya, look at look at what's happened. It's in receivership. The international community is controlling its finances. If that's the case, then why don't you give us a go? Let us have a try at our sovereignty, and we can do a better job than what, what has been really kind of decades, if not a century, of failure. Turning to the last case study, you say that the Islamic State was the most disruptive claimant to sovereign statehood to emerge after 2011. Can you talk about why that is and the implications on the global order? The Islamic State is the black sheep among the separatist groups. In fact, one of the often the 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 most common critiques I get when I talk about this book is that the Islamic State wasn't a separatist actor at all. It was a kind of global uh, jihadi organization that wanted to create a, uh, an international caliphate. So it doesn't really fit with li- the, the 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 cases of Libya, Yemen, or Kurdistan. I disagree. I think that the Islamic State had aspirations to create this global caliphate. It had a lot of kind of millenarial uh, messianic expectations about creating a global uh, about creating a global order. But that on the ground, functionally, the Islamic State was an activity by Iraqi Sunnis to create a political entity that was separate and apart from the domination of the the Iraqi state, and that expanded opportunistically uh, into in, in into Libya during the period of the revolution and reestablished. The political ties that had gone across the Libyan-Syrian frontier dating back into the Ottoman Empire. I think my favorite chapter or my favorite subchapter in the entire book was was a subchapter called the Jazeera Caliphate. People don't 
often know what the Jazeera is. When King Faisal went to the Versailles Peace Conference in 1919, he had a plan for Arab sovereignty that included the creation of a kind of a triple kingdom. There would be a king, an Arab kingdom of Hejaz, which his father would be the king. There would be a kingdom for Iraq. And he said there would be a kingdom for the Jazeera, which he said was a semi-civilized area that went north, all the areas north of Baghdad between the Tigris and the Euphrates River. So it's essentially the areas that go between Mosul and Aleppo. Ultimately, for kind of geopolitical reasons, Faisal never got his wish. Uh, he was he was got he got became the king of Iraq, uh, kind of as a as a consolation prize, and Iraq unified the the Ottoman provinces of Basra, Mosul, uh, and and Baghdad into a single political entity. But the idea that there is a political and economic, social, cultural, tribal connection that spans from northern Iraq, from the air, from the regions around Mosul, uh, all the way to Aleppo was still there. And the fact that there are the same tribes operate across the border. The, many of those tribes were very happy to, in Iraq because as long as Iraq was Sunni dominated, they, they represented the, the privileged ruling elite. When the Iraqi state faltered and collapsed in 2003, was demolished really in 2003, though, they started to, to reconsider their commitments to, the, to, the, uh, to, to this Iraq, right? They were, they were suddenly the odd men out. And then when the revolution happened in Syria, the border itself became uh, even more porous and the possibilities of creating a political, creating political context that would span uh, across the border was, was open. The Islamic State, in my mind, represented a kind of, is 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 really un is really unexceptional, right? There are lots of movements that have these kind of global aspirations, but are physically operating on the ground in very specific territorial ways. Uh, one of the examples, I think, a great example is the the, the Communist Party, uh, the Communist Party of Russia in the in the during the revolution. On the one hand, they talked about we're the party of all the workers. We have a, we have these grand aspirations to create a global revolution, but practically. And for, for functional reasons, they're really talking about fighting to, to, to reassert control over a particular country. They were, they were Russian nationalists, even at the same time that they were global revolutionaries. And ISIS is the same way. It's a Sunni, Sunni Arab uh, uh, uprising, that's, that's, but, it's, but talks about global revolution um, in, in much the same ways and has the same kind of um, uh, messianic, uh, millenarial um, uh, uh, ambitions but practically for functional reasons is operating uh, is is operating very locally right on the ground the islamic state devised its own currency it had its own education system it had its own police force its own justice system it ran hospitals it ran uh, hydroelectric plants right it became the state um, and a state in a very specific territorial way not a global state the way that its its ideologues and propagandists would have liked you to believe throughout the book you point to these kinds of political orders that arise when states recede. Can you talk about these new kinds of political organizations and what they mean for the future of states and the international community of states? When I started writing the book, I expected that I was going to finish the book with uh, independent Iraqi Kurdistan. I was um, optimistic. I thought that that um, the Barzani government would figure out some way, get recognition, and become uh, and and get, rec get international recognition in the way that South Sudan or in Kosovo had. I thought that they also had the best chance to do it. Uh, I was wrong. Obviously, I, I missed. I, I I was wildly overly optimistic in that respect. 
uh, in so far, right, right in 2019, about a year and a half since I finished writing the book, uh, none of the separatist movements have been able to get enough traction to force themselves into the into the agenda of the international community. None of them have been have been successful in establishing their own statehood. But they are in a position to be play a role of spoilers uh, to ruin the chances for reconsolidation of these states. This is especially the case uh, in Yemen, where uh, the, the the southern the, the, the southern movement, the southern resistance movement, uh, is far and away stronger than the central government and could resist, you know, could, could block any oper- any chance that that the central government, the Hadi government, would reassert control over Hajjama, Mara, uh, Mara or um, or Aden. Um, in in Iraq, uh, the the Kurdish referendum of 2017 was a failure, but I think that the the Kurdish nationalist drive is actually all the more is is probably because of that rejection is all the more potent. And again, there's no there's been no resolution about between what the what what the Kurds want and what the Iraqi state will offer them. In Syria, the the Kurdish resistance stands out as a kind of um, uh, is the last remaining stronghold not under the control of Bashar al-Assad. And they're looking to they're looking to find an international sponsor that might allow them to keep some kind of territorial autonomy. And if they don't get that, they're also talking about that they would they would be willing to fight. Same goes in in eastern Libya. So I think that the spoilers are, are while they've been militarily defeated, they're politically quite potent. And the fact that that separatists build off the basis of conquered states means that they're always going to be resurgent. Um, these ideas about about creating a separate state will not go away. Shifting to the international community, the perspective from the international community, I, these separatists, I think, show the limits of the idea of pursuing proxy warfare, of engaging uh, separatists uh, or other kinds of armed actors on a temporary ad hoc basis just for, 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 for short-term gains. The U.S. and other actors have, were reluctant to try to committing troops to these areas, and so they were always looking for uh, a partner. And the with the exception of the Islamic State, uh, each of these groups were were partners in the kind of in the in the global war on terror, and each of them got burned for doing it. Uh, they each of, none of them got the 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 results, the recognition, the support that they expected to get for doing it. And I think that that will have a long lasting legacy for the way separatist actors relate to the global community and how the global community engages with separatist actors. Ariel, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we let you go, would you tell us what you're working on now? Sure. Uh, I've been lucky to receive some funding from the Carnegie Corporation of New York uh, to working with Ranj Alaaddin, uh, uh, a fellow at the Brookings Institution at Doha, uh, to do a project on proxy wars in the Middle East and try and think about some new and inventive ways to resolve conflicts in the Middle East that don't involve um, simply just reconsolidating state control. I think we've been waiting to, for, for the reconsolidation of state control in Yemen in Libya, we'll be waiting a very long time. I think that we have that our project looks at alternative ways of engaging armed non-state actors in a way that that doesn't lead to that that doesn't necessitate uh, strong states. That sounds like a great project. Thanks for coming on today and talking about your book. Thank you for having me. Break all the borders: separatism and the reshaping of the Middle East by Ariel Aram is available now from Oxford University Press. Thanks for listening to New Books in National Security a podcast channel on the New Books Network.